Welcome to the Global Venturing Review Podcast. My name is James Mawson, founder and editor-in-chief of our Global Corporate Venturing, Global University Venturing and Global Impact Venturing Publications. And it's a great pleasure to be back this week with Jeremy Hellis. Welcome, Jeremy. Hello, Jim. It's great to finally be back. I've been away for a few weeks. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> from what I've seen, you've done a really good job of it, though. So oh, well, uh, <laughs> Thanks very much. Yeah. Well, thanks. You were kind of acting as news editor while Rob was well. So uh, you teed up all the stories. And uh, so it's made my life a lot easier just to be able to cherry pick a few to, to, to single out on the podcast. So thanks for all your work covering from Rob. And uh, nice being back just on Global University Venture, I imagine. It really is, yeah, yeah. It's always, uh, it's always fun to just focus on one publication at a time. Really helps with the uh, getting stuff done. <laughs> yes, there was that. Uh, that is that element coming out. I know your next uh, quarterly of Gov is coming out in a couple of weeks, so uh, so we're looking forward to seeing that. But you've been doing some good podcasts yourself, I think, with the uh, some of the interviews with Tony Raven and uh, Orin over at Columbia, and uh, obviously Leslie Miller Nickerson at MIT. So you've been spanning the world with some of your interviews it seems like i have indeed yes and i've got um i've got some lined up more from the us uh, i'm doing some in the uk next week as well some more from australia so so we really are uh, jumping through the time zones <laughs> <laughs> and i know what that means that's a code for getting up early or staying up late <laughs> both in my case yes <laughs> <laughs> cool but what's been the highlights over the past week jeremy what's the one of the big stories Well, Uber launched its shipping services platform, Uber Freight, in 2017, which feels like many years ago, and is now spinning it off with $500 million in Series A financing from Greenbrier Equity Group at a $3.3 billion post-money valuation. That funding will help Uber Freight compete against emerging companies like Flock Freight and LoadSmart, as well as international rivals such as BlackBuck, Freight Hub and Manbank Group. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, obviously a, a big A round now, wouldn't you, if you say it's uh, Series A at $500 million. But uh, in fact, the company's been around for a couple of years now and it's obviously showing some good traction. There's a lot of focus on logistics at the moment for obvious reason with with every concern around COVID around the world, obviously more increasingly in you know places like the US and UK and others um, for a second wave, you know, being able to make sure the logistics can handle um, you know, sort of being able to make sure the manufacturing can stay up as well as deliver goods to consumers is a, is a vital part. So those which are able to sort of fundamentally make things a little bit more digitalized, um, you know, and sort of use some of the data, in, you know, should make things a lot more efficient. So big round, uh, but, um, you know, but perhaps no surprise that this area has been one of the uh, real sort of uh, focused ones. I think it's going to be interesting to see whether, as with Uber or uh, ride hailing um, in whether we see some of the competitors ultimately ending up merging and just there uh, being a couple of big global players but uh, we shall see on that one yeah yeah a long way to go still I think and as you said it's 500 million for technically a series A but I imagine Uber's been putting in quite a lot of money in internally over the past three years so even if it's called a series A it's it's probably more growth stage um, round really then we have, well, several corporates have in the past year or so adjusted their CVC models to focus on independent venture firms that they sponsor as opposed to operating internal units. But Russian conglomerate Systema was among the first, seeding VC firm Systema Asia Capital in 2015 with a brief to invest in consumer and enterprise technology. The firm closed its first fund at $120 million but plans to expand that to between $150 and $175 million 
for the second vehicle. It's so far achieved two exits and it tends to boost its ticket size, currently up to 5 million for the next fund as well. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting sort of uh, example here, obviously sort of Russian conglomerate Sistema, um, not found it hugely easier to or desirable to want to do deals in say the US or UK and other parts, but they focus very much in some of the places like India, which is where I think here Sistema Asia Capital has been based and been doing some interesting deals in that market. Um, you know, but having that slight arm's length uh, sort of funding structure and sort of team focus is, uh, has obviously been beneficial. And we are seeing others that uh, fundamentally are doing similar sort of approaches, whether it's sort of 8VC backed by Allianz or a whole host of other ones. You know, the sort of focus is having a, you know, a sort of you know, a sapphire from SAP, you know, having a focus on, um, you know, having it professionally run tied to corporate sort of ultimate interests uh, while retaining some of the focus on the financial results uh, to incentivize the team seems like you know we're heading towards this blending of corporate and independent venture capital is very much a sort of one potential future option doesn't necessarily work with all groups but definitely seems to marry some of the opportunities of staying close to the corporate parent to obviously offer support to the entrepreneur you know, she's looking for capital, customers, product development, hiring in an exit, and um, potentially some geopolitical and regulatory help as well, while retaining a team able to, you know, basically stand toe-to-toe with any independent VCs and say, look, we're trying to maximise the financial results because then that creates a virtuous circle to reinvest the money or give the money back to the LP and then, you know, raise a newer, bigger fund potentially. So definitely feels like our system has um, found a nice model in that regard. Then we have, we're moving further into Asia and we have something else entirely. South Korean record company and talent manager Big Hit Entertainment specializes in K-pop idol groups and has struck gold with BTS, now one of the biggest groups in the world. It's also lined up an IPO in its home country that will involve it floating at the top of its range to raise $842 million. The IPO is reportedly set to value the company at roughly $4.2 billion and will represent a huge return for mobile game developer Netmarble, which paid just $190 million for a 25.7% stake two and a half years ago. Yeah, I mean, it's a big, um, it was a big uh, sort of round, isn't it? Um, you, know, uh, you know, in terms of a size, um, I'm not going to try and pronounce the acronym that BTS stands for, <laughs> uh, but there is a there is an interesting sort of I think Netflix movie out called Burn the Stage, which is a slightly easier way of thinking about it. And um, you know, but I think it's quite you know an interesting area this because we see in a lot around sort of media people increasingly being able to sort of look as they're sort of in lockdown about how you know how they sort of get entertainment whether it's gaming. But many of the big sort of pop companies, you know, in effect have relied on live shows. They've had to, you know, they've had to have the concerts. They haven't made so much money from selling the records. You know, issues around streaming music from a Spotify or platforms like that, are, you know, slightly more complex than perhaps they used to be in terms of divvying up the revenue. You know, but I think now we're starting to see that, you know, actually people can really make some potentially really big money around 
the sort of shows if they can get into some of the big gaming platforms, whether it's sort of, you know, Marshmallow a couple of years ago doing a nice stream for uh, on Fortnite or more recently, you know, some of the other sort of live stream where they can get tens of millions of people watching. And I think you're starting to see, in effect, this sort of move of streaming not being necessarily so much about a product. You know, in effect, we've got a, a product called streaming and we might show games or we might show music, but in China, increasingly, streaming's becoming around creating the people who watch the streaming as a distribution channel themselves. And so, you know, it's a really interesting move. So I think if, you know, this is a massive-sized, you know, valuation for, you know, what is fundamentally can be a fairly fickle industry, you know, there are a few brands, a few bands that are able to cross generations or cross years, you know, something like a James Bond franchise has been around 60 years you know but there are relatively few of those that can keep on going so the fact that people potentially could raise an ipo at such a large valuation indicates that you know what ultimately um you know um you know big hit entertainment is trying to do is to say they can link up with ultimately a much bigger distribution stream you know around their sort of fans and create a very different sort of paradigm and i think that's super exciting actually i think you know great on netmarble for being able to hook into big hits early enough um you know but i think actually the sort of future could be sort of much more interesting than just looking at that you just look at the way that sort of augmented or virtual reality is going this sort of mixed reality you look at the understanding of how a game like Fortnite is trying to develop things, which is obviously part owned by Tencent, big Chinese game player. And, um, you know, and then uh, I just think uh, this could be a really interesting sort of uh, opportunity. Yeah, yeah, definitely a fascinating one. Moving on to crossover news of the past week, uh, which was actually, the biggest one was actually an acquisition, specifically the $350 million purchase of Harvard's gene sequencing technology spin-out Recore by 10x Genomics. The company had raised $50 million in funding, and pharmaceutical firm Eli Lilly's Lilly Ventures contributed to a $23 million Series A round in 2016. That was led by Dejan Capital and also backed by Vivo Capital and Hans-Jörg Wies. Wies was actually responsible for Harvard University establishing the Wies Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering, from which Readcore was spun out. So this story has a has nicely come full circle. Yeah, I mean that is a nice story actually. Um, Thierry, uh, you know, obviously you know, being able to focus on sort of gene sequencing in the week that uh, that sees for the first time two female scientists win the sort of Nobel Prize for Medicine and. Jennifer Duda and, um, you know, is, you know, I think sort of interesting because actually this sort of gene sequencing, then gene segmentation and sort of splicing and dicing that can then happen, you know, I think is is fundamentally one of the most disruptive technologies out there. It's, you know, the sort of CRISPR-Cas9, you know, sort of gene editing, you know, can only come about because you can properly sequence a gene. And, you know, what used to cost a couple of billion to do the first one nearly 20 years ago you know, in effect now, you know, is just a sort of routine sort of getting out your virtual scissors and, uh, you know, cutting and putting new things in. And once you do that and you ally it to AI, you know, around being able to look through different molecules and different molecule sizes for innovations and then splice and chice to make new different types of creativity, you know, I just think the sort of 
things go really exponential at that stage. So the fact that it's uh, sort of nice for the visa, um, you, know, um, you know, institute to kind of see a financial return to someone who's given the money to create something in the first place, I think should only encourage that sort of combination of philanthropy and, um, you know, and sort of venturing out of, you know, really established university. So great one. But what do you think of, uh, you know, Harvard and, uh, you know, and uh, what they, they've been trying to do uh, sort of, yeah, because it felt like in some ways they've been a little bit behind that, the venture capital curve, um, you know, as, a, as an institution. But uh, you probably know better than I do. Um, I mean, Harvard and actually the, the Waste Institute do pop up on our radar fairly regularly. So they, they, they have been active. I'm not, I don't have any figures to hand how much total money they've raised over the years. Um, I don't think they're one of they're not on the same level quite as, as Stanford and MIT, but I don't know who is really. Um, but I, I, I would say they've been doing fairly well for what is a, a, a good research university. Um, there's, there's always ways to move up. Um, but I, I've never really thought of Harvard university having any missed opportunities, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I think they come fourth on the sort of pitch book ranking of number of founders, founded companies or uh, founders uh, out of the university, third by um, uh, by sort of number of companies, uh, you know, and second by sort of capital raise. So, yeah, my, that's interesting that, uh, you know, they, they're probably, I just never think that much that they've kind of really cracked the sort of, you know, university venture funds in the way that say MIT as the engine, or you know, um, Stanford as StarTex, or um, you know, and Berkeley obviously as the sort of Skydeck funds. You know, I don't think they've got a sort of an in-house university fund themselves. They've got X funds, haven't they? I suppose, which was um, affiliated. Yeah, which is yeah, yeah. I don't. I'm not aware, or at least I'm. I imagine most universities now have a kind of small translational seed fund internally but i i don't think harvard has 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 anything on on a bigger scale like like the engine as you said but then i suppose maybe x fund is is enough for them <laughs> they they might not see a reason to uh to raise any big bucks internally if if i mean patrick is patrick chung is, is doing a fantastic job with x fund so yeah mm, yeah it's interesting i mean it's obviously no shortage of capital going towards harvard given it's uh brand stuff coming out of the MBA obviously different parts of um, the university it just you know you don't help but wonder you know given what StarTex has done for even a place like Stanford where there was definitely no shortage of capitals and founders you know that uh, that you know that actually um, you know perhaps a little bit more could be done but I suppose they're in that sort of ecosystem of MIT and there's so many investors there or thereabouts so um yeah, why bother? But yeah, great deal for um for Core in a great area. So congrats to them. What about the news and briefs, Thierry? What's uh, what else has been on your radar? We have uh, well, as 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 often recently, the news and briefs are still some big deals. Starting with GoPuff's consumer goods delivery service, which has been boosted significantly by social distancing measures in recent months, and it's accordingly secured three hundred ninety million dollars from investors, including SoftBank Vision Fund at a $3.9 billion valuation. Vision Fund had already led a $750 million round for GoPuff last year, 
and the proceeds from the latest deal will go to expanding its range of products. Uncork, the creator of a no-code app development platform, has meanwhile pulled in $207 million through a Series C round featuring Capital G, Broadridge Financial Solutions and Hewlett Packard Enterprise that valued it at $2 billion. The round increased Uncork's overall funding to $368 million and the capital will support recruitment, technology development and an expansion in its training and go-to-market partnerships. Then we also have Instacart, which relies on shoppers picking up goods from stores as opposed to fulfillment centers used by GoPuff. It's also raised $200 million in a round co-led by Valiant Peregrine Fund and D1 Capital Partners at a colossal $17.7 billion valuation, up $3.9 billion from the close of its last round just three months ago. The company's earlier investors include Comcast Ventures, American Express Ventures and Whole Foods, now of course owned by Amazon. Tanium is among the most valuable VC-backed cybersecurity software providers right now and has pulled in $150 million from investors including Fidelity Management and Research, Bailey Gifford and T. Rowe Price at a valuation in excess of $9 billion. Salesforce invested in the company in June, its earlier backers also including City Ventures and its overall funding now standing at more than $900 million. Telemedicine has been one of the big success stories this year thanks to, well, again, social distancing measures, but most of the products focus on diagnostics and consultation. Avail Biosciences procedural telemedicine system is designed for use in the operating theatre to enable experts to consult on surgical procedures, and it has raised $100 million in its Series B round. The round was led by D1 Capital Partners, who have really been busy these last few weeks, and also featured existing investors that may have included Baidu Ventures. Funds, we've got one more for you here. Germany-based energy utility E.ON acquired Domestic Peer Energy in June, and four months on it has formed a venture capital investment and collaboration platform called Future Energy Ventures. The unit launched with a portfolio of more than 60 companies and corporate venturing team members from both utilities and will target developers of digital technology that can enhance the energy sector. Moving on to exits, where Lufax has less than two months to achieve one of the biggest IPOs of the year, having filed to go public on the New York Stock Exchange two years after raising money at a valuation topping $39 billion. The online lending and wealth management platform was spun off by China-based insurance firm Ping An, which still owns 42%, and its subsequent investors include Kofco, Bank of China, UBS, JP Morgan, Macari Group, UOB and Goldman Sachs. Immersive gaming platform Roblox is reportedly lining up an initial public offering that could potentially double its valuation to $8 billion. The company has raised $550 million in funding so far, most recently pulling in $150 million through a February 2020 Series G round featuring Tencent pushed its valuation from $2.5 billion to $4 billion. Alphabet had a somewhat busy week in corporate venturing. One of its portfolio companies, tech-equipped health insurance provider Clover Health, looks set to give it a healthy exit after agreeing to a reverse merger with SPAC Social Capital Hedosophia Holdings Corporation 3 at a $3.7 billion valuation. 
The deal will follow approximately $925 million in funding and the merged business will get some $400 million in pipe financing in addition to $882 million in the SPAC's account. Ozon, the Russia-based e-commerce marketplace that counts Systema and Cisco investments among its backers and is often called the Amazon of Russia, has confidentially also filed for an IPO in the United States, according to the Wall Street Journal. The offering is expected to value Ozon, which, whose business has soared during the coronavirus pandemic between 3 and $5 billion, and is slated to take place in late 2020 or early 2021. Really, of course, a raft of high-valued companies in the tech space are currently lining up IPOs, and UK-based Deliveroo is also among them. The online food delivery platform has seen numbers rise significantly during the pandemic and is expecting its valuation in the offering to top $2.6 billion. That would be good news for Amazon, which led the company's $575 million Series G round in May last year but which had to wait 13 months for the deal to get regulatory approval due to competition concerns. And finally, some comings and goings. The Engine, the tough tech venture fund and incubator formed by MIT, has appointed Sue Siegel as its chairwoman. Siegel is, of course, the former chief innovation officer of industrial conglomerate General Electric and CEO of its corporate venturing subsidiary GE Ventures, having stood down from both roles in July last year. A five-times GCV Powerlist Award winner and Lifetime Achievement Awardee, she's been on the board at the engine since its inception in 2016. Amit Sridharan, Director of Corporate Venture Capital in the US for diversified India-based conglomerate Mahindra Group, has left to set up seed stage venture capital firm First Raise Venture Partners. The firm will invest in business-to-business enterprise technology developers in areas such as AI, cloud-edge data orchestration and automation. Its initial portfolio consists of clean software, blitz.io and enya.ai. Bretton Berkhofer, principal at Prologis Ventures, the corporate venturing unit for US-based commercial property manager Prologis, has joined Pierre Difco West as director of venture capital investments. Over the past four and a half years at Porogis Ventures, Berkhofer has taken board observer positions at portfolio companies including Wise Systems, Airspace Technologies and Workstep. Netherlands-based bank ING, meanwhile, has promoted Annery Reugendeel, head of wholesale banking innovation, to oversee NIG NEO, a new unit to combine all of its innovation programs and reporting directly to new CEO Steven van Rijswijk. Benoit Legrand, ING's current Head of Innovation and Corporate Venturing and former GCV Powerlist Award winner, said he would continue to lead Innovation and ING Ventures until 31st of December. And finally, Karen Elizabeth Orm Hesker, Investment Manager and Head of DNB Ventures, the Corporate Venturing Unit for Norway's largest financial services group, has joined accountancy firm BDO as Director of Business and Strategy Advisory. Om Heskia, a GCV Powerless 2020 award winner, had helped set up DNB Ventures in late 2017 and said she would be, quote, connected to the corporate venture arm of BDO as part of my work. End quote. And end of the roundup. Wonderful. Thanks for that, Thierry. Thanks very much, Jim. Have a productive week, everyone.
Global Venturing Review was produced by In-Ear Production. You can find out more by going to inearproduction.com.